and welcome to the Hear It podcast. I'm your host Rebecca Roberts and I'll be speaking with guests about their work, research and ideas on better engaging young people. I really hope you like it. This week we're joined by Dr Josephine Perry, charter psychologist, founder of Performance in Mind, journalist and author. Having worked in communications and behaviour change, it was her own experience competing in Ironman in Melbourne in 2013 that inspired her to learn more about performance psychology and she has just gone on to write about a whole breadth of things in sport including children and teen athletes. Josephine, thank you so much for coming on the Hear It podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. Um, Tell us a little bit about your communications and marketing background and how that evolved into psychology. Yeah, it's a bit random, isn't it? So my very first kind of cool job was as an intern in Washington, D.C. Um, my first day of work was the day the Monica Lewinsky story broke. Wow. Um, which was a big deal at the time of like walking in very innocent, young, I was 20, I think, um, British girl in my little violet suit thinking I'd really made it and being told to sit down, shut up, and this story will be over in a few few hours. Um, and I think I left the bureau Maybe three days later, it was just, but it was amazing to be involved in it. It was the, the best intro to journalism you could ever get. Um, and I stayed working there when I came back to the UK after the internship and stuff for a few years, which was brilliant. Got kind of grad trainee job in lobbying. And I was very lucky. I always worked for really nice companies. You often think with lobbying, you have to work for some really kind of quite difficult companies and you're really trying to put a spin on things but I got to work for some brilliant companies which was really nice pushing great messages getting more people involved and then yeah that kind of merged I guess into more general communications so my last call it grown-up job was comms director at Nuffield Health we had lots of hospitals but actually we wanted to keep people out of the hospitals it was much more about getting them fit and healthy in the gym um, so they didn't need kind of work within hospitals 2013 I went to Melbourne to do an Ironman and I was used to doing lots of nice swimming in 20 metre Nuffield pools in central (laughs) London and I stood on the beach and there was the biggest waves I have ever seen. I was utterly terrified and even the Aussies looked kind of green and nervous Um, and the guy in the tannoy said, you can't control those waves, you can only control how you feel about them and it was almost like a cartoon light bulb moment of, oh yeah. I'd been doing triathlon for 10 years at that time. It just never really occurred to me that my brain was quite an important part of sport. Um, It was the first time it kind of really clicked. And I got in the water and I did the swim. And it was horrific, but I survived. And I had a great race. And when I got back to the UK, I was miserable in the job I was doing. And I was like, there might be something else out there for me. So I signed up to a conversion course into psychology. And then it was a master's in sport and exercise psychology. And then you do basically two, three years training with a supervisor as um, we call it sport and exercise psychology, but it's kind of performance psychology. It cuts across the board. So your latest book, I Can, A Teenage Athlete's Guide to Mental Fitness, aims to help young athletes improve within their sport and enjoy competing. Tell us why you felt teenagers needed a specific conversation. I guess what really surprised me when I started out as a sports psych consultant was how many parents phoned me asking for help for their kids. And I just because I didn't have kids at that time, it never really occurred to me as kind of this might be an area you'd work in. I just assumed you'd be working with like elite athletes. And then you start getting all these calls. And then I realized kind of one, how much fun they are to work with. But also, I am really glad I'm not a teenager now. (laughs) Because they have so many pressures. Like I got my first mobile phone when I was 17, because I lived a long way from town and I had to drive to school and see my friends. And so my mum gave me a mobile for for emergencies um and they just come out 
And that was literally, you were lucky if you could play Snake on a Nokia then. And now, the, I guess the peer pressure that is in your palm of your hand constantly is huge. And I've had people, young athletes, who are like, they're not that upset if they lose a tennis match because of the tennis match itself. But they're worried about what's going to be chatted about on WhatsApp from their friends group. They've got that knowledge that they're the tennis girl. And actually, they may not love tennis anymore and they might like to do something else, but they've got that self-image and that identity from others as well. And it becomes a real pressure. And I also used to ask when parents would phone me, does your child have kind of perfectionistic tendencies? I don't anymore because there is no point. I have yet to have a parent say no. And I think a lot of young teenage athletes I'm working with have those perfectionistic tendencies, but they're also really high achievers. And so they're not just great at sport. And often in more than one sport, and they're trying to pick between them. But they're also playing music to a high level. They're trying to do really well in school. They've got ambitions, often to go abroad on scholarships for university. They're trying to be a great friend. They're trying to be a good daughter, sister, brother. They've got so many pressures. And I wish the tools we teach young athletes in sport could be taught in schools. Because if you learn how to set your goals really well, if you learn what was going on in your brain when you're under threat or pressure, if you learn how to reframe negative thoughts more helpfully, if you learn how to accept that some stuff, sometimes just bad stuff happens and what defines you is how you come out of it and how you handle it rather than kind of rebelling against it, you'd get on so much better. It's a really interesting one because I think with school sport in particular and what I guess I get frustrated about is that for secondary school in particular that sport unless you're studying it is kind of seen as like a you know we know we've got to do it but it's less important and I've always argued like when I've worked in higher education as well as that the students that are often the brightest like the medics that would come to the med school who are you know grade a students were the ones who were also really into sport and like you say music and actually you shouldn't detach the two because it it helps manage that I just find that really worrying where the two are kind of split you know you look at all the Ivy League universities in the states and they do have that kind of sporting kind of culture that here is just it's just so different I don't know why it is it's detached I wonder why that's why so many young athletes are looking for those scholarships one because yes obviously it will get them through through college for less money um, but they're putting themselves on the other side of the world away from all their support systems to do so but somebody the other day said oh yeah but I'm just one of the sweats I was like whoa I've never heard it called that before but yeah actually you have the swats and the sweats in school and you're like that identity element is so crucial to who you are and we're often trying to get athletes to be much more multi-dimensional in who they are because if you just see yourself as a runner and you get injured then you've got nothing left and so a lot of the work I'm doing with teens is trying to build more of an identity for them and so we don't want them just to be a sweat because actually that means they might neglect the school side of it because that's not them so why should they try so hard they're not seen as part of that but it also can be so harmful if they can't do their sport or we see a lot of Um, kids coming out of football academies and they've been the football boy forever and they're known for going off to this academy and some of the ways they get dropped at the end of it suddenly like oh you're out without that communication to support them their whole identity's gone 
because one person made one decision overnight. It's um, particularly in football, I did a, a campaign with at the EIS actually called Pitch to Podium, specifically around uh, talent ID and transfer because so many young athletes were sort of dropped. And, and I think particularly football, it's that kind of, you've got your family building up as this kind of one dimensional persona. It's like, well, they've been signed for this amazing club. And I think it's, I think also for teenagers, it's an interesting age group you've kind of picked on because you're always naturally trying to find out who you are anyway. So I think that yeah. idea of identity is like really challenging in sport as well. And they've got a phone in front of them that's got Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, where they are constantly seeing others' best lives. And so they're comparing their warts and all, I feel rubbish today, I don't feel like I can do anything, to somebody else who's taken 100 pictures to get one nice shot that they then stick up looking like they're living an amazing life. And they're constantly comparing in that way. That's what I'm so glad we didn't grow up with. It's bad enough going to school and seeing the girl with a far better perm than you or something. But having that follow you home and constantly must be really tough for them. I love how we're both nodding to perm because that would have been a thing at school. (laughs) I wasn't allowed one and I was gutted. And now I look back and think my mum was very sensible. Um, so yeah sport and particularly performance sport is a great example of an environment where young people will be exposed to pressure and competition and you don't have to look too far to see some of the issues that brings um, certainly in the media how do coaches and support teams need to work with younger athletes differently to adults do you think one of the things that really struck me when I interviewed um, retired and current athletes for the book I can was almost all of them said if I was like one piece of advice you would give to teens, they were like, ask loads of questions. And particularly remember Rebecca Adlington really highlighting this. She was like, when I started out, I didn't feel empowered enough to ask loads of questions. I just thought it would be disrespectful for my coach to ask because we're supposed to just follow whatever they say. It would look rude if we ask questions. And yet Emma Wiggs, who's an amazing paracanoist, um, she's like, I know I've cultivated a good quality of confidence because I've asked more questions than anybody else. I really understand why I am doing everything I'm doing. And when you understand it, you can have a bit more autonomy and take a bit more ownership of your sport. And so I thought that was a really important one. Coaches pushing their athletes to ask questions and really listening to those questions and giving insightful answers and not feeling disrespected at all. Actually feeling like this is brilliant, they want to learn. So I think that's a really important one. One of the things I've seen going on with lockdown is kind of burnout and fatigue. And particularly if you've got those perfectionistic tendencies and you've got the crazy life we've had for the last year, it's going to be higher. And so something we work on a lot is thinking, we tend to compartmentalise in our brain. It's like, I've got some stress from school stuff and I've got some stress from sport and I've got this competition coming up and I've got my personal statement to write for university applications or something. And they may only have 30% of stress in each bucket in our head. But that's 120% of one bucket. And our body only sees one bucket of fatigue. And so we think we're okay because we've got these little buckets that are only a little bit full. But actually, we've got to a stage of burnout. And so coaches really being able to understand what else is going on in an athlete's life is so important. Because the stress I see when somebody knows they've got I mean, I know GCSEs aren't going on this year, but they've got assessments. Plus, they've got all their competitions starting to come back. Plus, they actually want to go out and see their friends because they haven't been able to do their usual stuff. And it's all happening within about a three-week time span. So the more coaches can understand what's 
what else is going on in their lives to minimize those individual buckets I think is really important and then I guess finally it's helping athletes or any young people actually compare with themselves and where they were and not with anyone else so I'm working with lots of brilliant schools at the moment who saw the book and are like right how do we implement this framework into our school and one of the first things lots of them are doing is not reporting the scores of competitions that their teams have been in so instead of the newsletter saying first team footballers won three nil at the weekend they will find other really good things to say about that match the team played really really hard and worked together on the skills we've been practicing so that we start to move away from comparison and outcomes and much more onto the value of what you put into things that is really interesting. And I think your point about that whole, the idea of buckets and what else is going on for young people. As an older generation, what I see from a lot of older teams is they can, it's very easy to dismiss what young people are facing. So it's like, well, you're the guy, that's just one exam. It does, it's in the whole grand scheme of life. So for example, lockdown, well, you know, there'll be other birthday parties and, and will you get your driving test eventually? Whereas if you put yourself in their shoes, like you've missed loads of first opportunities. And I think there is this like lack of appreciation of what that actually feels like. Like, oh, it's great you don't have to do an exam. But if you studied for five years or whatever at school building, that feels really weird. Like, yeah, it's a very strange thing. And it's a very dismissive thing to just go, oh, it's great. You'll be fine. And not recognise that emotion, I think. I, th- I always get it when you see like a level results day and like celebrities and older people always go oh well I failed mine and I turned out to- and don't worry about it and all that stuff and you're like I remember f- I screwed mine up um to the point where ITV News came to film the results at my school and they filmed my friends jumping up and down and hugging and then they scanned to me sitting on the pavement saying and oh. some people weren't so happy it's a lasting little moment to keep there <laughs> yeah I love that um and in that moment, it was the end of the world. Of course. And actually, it should be recognised as this: these moments that they might have missed or are so different than they were expecting. They need to be accepted for that. We're not brushing over it. We're not trying to reframe it and make it all bouncy and happy. But have some acceptance that this wasn't the last year and a half that they'd planned for for a long time. And in a 16-year-old's life, a year and a half is actually... A large chunk of that. And one of your recent articles um, for the Times, you talked about the return of youth sport following lockdown restrictions and the importance of parental behaviour on the sidelines. And you talk about the pressure almost fear it can create, especially with sort of overzealous parents. How can parents basically behave themselves and better behave and <laughs> um, better support children within sport? I think the thing that gets my alarm bells ringing when a parent phones and says, my, my child's struggling with this, is that they will say something like, we can't afford the level of coaching that we think they need so we've learned the sport ourselves so we can coach them no you might be brilliant but your child is never going to listen to you so I guess the biggest thing is don't try to coach them what they need is a parent that gives them a hug afterwards and says I love you no matter what they don't need an extra coach so the more you can step back from that and remember you are not a coach even if I know you've got a world championship medal in that sport you are not their coach let them be coached by somebody else, be their parent. That's what they need more than anything. Ask them, or the teens should be asking the parents, um, I want you to behave like this. And actually, when I sometimes facilitate that conversation between parents and their young athletes, the kids can then say, I really don't like it when you watch. I feel too much pressure. Can you go to the coffee shop? Or other times they'll be like, I really like it, but I like it if you're on your phone. So I know you're there, but you're not like judging what I'm doing. And just having that conversation 
is really helpful. No sporting advice. A guy I know has done some really fun research where they put GoPro cameras in the front of cars with kids on the way to tennis matches. And they recorded what was said, but also the, the facial movements and the, the body movement. And when parents give coaching advice, kids shut down. Face goes blank, they move away. They don't want to hear it. Best type of advice is something like, what's your coach suggested you work on today? So you're helping them remember what their focus should be, but without that same level of feeling like pressure. Same as with teachers, don't ask about the score. I had a triathlon coach say they'd worked so, so hard with somebody to get them from complete novice to doing pretty well in a great team. They'd had a brilliant, I think, bike section and they were so pleased about how well this kid had done. And then the parents came along and said, why didn't you win? And they said, you could just see the the kid's face drain with like the pride just went in a second from I'm so proud of what I did to I'm a failure. And so talking about results and outcomes can take away all of that enjoyment and fun but when you talk about effort and enjoyment and focus and purpose and goal it stays and the irony is someone tends to do better when those are the things so you tend to win more when you're trying not to win but that's a really tricky mindset to get into so those teams who listen who have a remit to engage young audiences with campaigns about being active what advice would you give to sort of changing behavior so I am a slight geek when it comes to psychological theories and I have a favorite one which is really sad Um, but I use it for so much and it's one of those theories that just makes so much sense in my head and it's called self-determination theory and the idea behind it is that there's kind of three types of motivation There's a motivation, cannot be bothered, that I'd rather sit on the sofa and eat my biscuits than go out for a run. There's extrinsic motivation, where we get motivated by winning stuff and medals and the money or the the feeling of pride that comes with it. And that's okay, we can use that. And we certainly see that works a lot with some of the elite athletes who are all working towards Tokyo Olympics at the moment. But then we also have intrinsic motivation. And that's the, I just love doing this. And one of the best examples I saw was when I was doing the interviews for the I Can book, um, a footballer called Sean Wright Phillips. And he was talking about when he went down a, he went from the Premier League down a league. And I was like, how did you handle that? And he was like, I was still being paid to play football. I love football. He said, I loved football so much that when my mum used to send me and my brother to the shop when we were little, it would be like a five minute walk, but it would take us 40 because we had to take a football with us and like kick it to each other the entire way. What shone out of his interview was just utter joy and passion for football. And so you could see that he could handle lots of what was thrown at him because he got to play football. And he has that real intrinsic motivation. Self-determination theory says to get that intrinsic motivation, you need three kind of pillars in place. So you need a sense of belonging. And to get that, you need to give kids a real community around their sport. Lots of kids, especially the younger ones, they don't go to play football to learn lots of skills and to win matches. They go to play with their mates. And the more we can keep that going... That tends to drop off. It actually starts to drop off about seven or eight, but it really drops off about 13 when everything starts being more competitive and more leagues and that kind of stuff. The longer we can keep that sense of community and doing it for the team, the more likely we are to keep kids engaged in sport. The second pillar is mastery or competency, being good at it. So actually helping kids get really good at something keeps them sticking because we all like doing stuff. 
we're good at. And the book I wrote before this one was called The Psychology of Exercise. And I looked at different age groups of how you get them more engaged in exercise. And I did a whole chapter on teens. And within that, particularly teens who are obese, where they'd been able to do effective work was around weight training, because your size has less impact on how good you are at weight training. And so when they could start to really help them see that they were actually okay at something that was exercise based by promoting that, then other things opened up to them. But they gave them a sense of um, competency in an area they could do and then expanded it. And then the final area, which is so tricky for teens, is autonomy. And this is where I can really see kind of 14, 15 year old struggle, which is they want to choose what they do, but they haven't quite got the ability to do so. They can't drive themselves to matches or to training. So they still need other people, but they want to make those choices themselves. So for parents, anything you can do, and for coaches and teachers, actually, anything to give kids more autonomy is beneficial. So even for some, I might ask the kids to enter their own competitions. So rather than their mum or dad going through the list of events and choosing, it's like, let them pick. And then they've got more ownership of it. They're more up for it. It feels like their thing. And even if parents are really careful not to tell kids how much money they have spent on their sport, kids know. So they know that mum's given up three evenings a week to sit around outside the squash club or the tennis club or Sunday mornings on the pitches. They know how much kit costs. They know what entry fees are. They figure that stuff out and they don't want to have wasted their parents' time and money. And so a lot of time they might have grown out of their sport or they have fallen out of love with it or there's something else they want to do. And they're kind of too scared to say that because they don't want that investment to have gone. So the more parents can reassure that it was an investment in their future and all the other skills and benefits they'll get from having been active, that's good enough. They don't have to go off and be a professional athlete, but give them the autonomy to say that, I think would really help. Are there any campaigns or brands that you think do a particularly good job when it comes to engaging young people? I struggle with this because I'm a middle-aged mom. And my daughter's only four, so we're still into like Ben and Holly and Barbie, who's definitely changed as a brand, I have to say, since I was young. I'm really impressed. They've got like wheelchair Barbie and they've got like really cool, famous people that they've turned into Barbie. So, and really nice messaging. I see stuff that I love, but I'm not always sure how well it would land with like a 15 year old. What I do see talks to teens is music because it's... It's such a obviously huge genre that they can find their own thing. And I do a lot with teens on performance playlists, which is one of my favourite tasks to do of like, what's going to amp you up into the right place to go out and perform? Or actually what's going to calm you? And so really working through their playlists with them to find what talks to them. And so they feel like a real individual with it. That's the one I love doing. Eminem seems to be incredibly popular for teenagers still. (laughs) That's what they were listening to before they go out and play tennis matches. I love that. And so apart from your books, which obviously I'll be (laughs) linking in the show notes, big plug, um, are there any books, podcasts or newsletters that you'd really recommend? One, I used to buy far too many books, but now because I have a section on my website where I review really good sports psychology books, people keep sending them to me to review and I'm like, I can't, I can't do any more. It's, it's too good. And there's like, there's a Japanese word for the pile of books on your bedside table. Oh, I know this because I was laughing because I was like, I am that person. I have three piles where I listen to podcasts and stupidly buy all the books. And yeah. then I'm like, I feel guilty because I've got so many books to read and I've become better. If I start reading a book and don't like it, I stop because I felt guilty. Yeah, it's liberating. Podcasts I listen to a lot because running's my 
headspace and I love podcasts when I'm running so I think for sport her spirit podcast is um one of the hosts is my triathlon coach Annie Emerson so I'm very biased but I love listening to that because you always learn something really really interesting and then Two comedians, Josh Widdicombe and Rob Beckett, did lockdown parenting. That got me through lockdown. Knowing other people were going, what the hell's going on? What do I do? was amazing. And I still love it. That's my first one I go to. And there's another one called Doing It For The Kids, which is freelancers. Just kind of, how on earth do you navigate this stuff? And I love listening to them. I'm, I always trip over at some point listening to their stuff because they make me laugh so much. Newsletters. I've just found, I'm not very good at saying her name, Caroline... Priado Perez, who wrote Invisible Women, her newsletter's amazing. It's funny, but it's also just highlighting some of the the craziness of being female, living in a world that's entirely designed for men. A guy called Alexander Priest does a Monday newsletter called All Things Sport. That is really good, for, especially for campaigns. He highlights some really good campaigns coming out, which athletes are working with which brands, what's kind of going on in that business marketing side of sports. Good. And then I do quite a bit of journalism um, and Sean Mendes-Williams does a brilliant weekly email of all the journalism freelance call-outs that are out there, which is always good to look through and see who's looking for, for pieces. Thank you for listening to the Hear It podcast. You can find links to everything we talked about in the show notes. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at the Hear It podcast or threadandfable.com. And if you've enjoyed the show today, please drop us a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts.